opening and closing theme is by Midnight Syndicate. For more dark instrumental music like it, visit www.midnightsyndicate.com or find them on YouTube, Spotify, Apple, or Alexa. True crime stories are discussed in this podcast, which may contain graphic and disturbing content. Listener discretion is advised. Hello and welcome back to Freshly Brewed Noir. I'm Jennifer. And I'm Summer. And this is episode 37, William Devin Howell, a.k.a. The Sick Ripper. I couldn't think of what I should say next. (laughs) (laughs) Summer needs to uh, drink some more of that coffee. (laughs) But in your defense, you've been very busy nonstop. I have been, yes. Where are you taking us today? Uh, I'm going to take you to Connecticut. One of the most prolific serial killers, William Devin Howell. He murdered seven people in just nine months from a short time span. So just from February to October of 2003, he would bury their bodies in shallow graves in a roughly three quarters of an acre swampy wooded lot behind a strip mall he called his garden. I'm assuming there are not flowers in this garden. No, there's dead bodies in this garden. So is it like a Dorothea kind of thing where she had her... It's kind of similar as far as he had one place that he would bury the bodies, yes. Great. (laughs) Uh, So he would lure his victims into his murder mobile, which is what apparently he called it. And it was a large work van that actually belonged to his girlfriend at the time. And then he would bind them with zip ties and duct tape and take them to abandoned parking lots where he would keep them for about a day and a half to continually rape and brutalize them for hours and hours at a time. That does nothing to you. (laughs) (laughs) I thought you you wanted to finish the the paragraph. (laughs) I told you this episode, there's going to be a lot that I'm just going to probably pause and blank out because I'm so exhausted. I'm going to try try my best. poor thing. We're going to make it through. Don't worry. We will. So he didn't have an awful childhood or abusive parents or really anything abnormal that could lead someone to understand why he became such an evil person. Even Howell will say that he does not understand why he is the way he is. He is a monster and calls himself one, but he also says that he is a good guy. So living in a fantasy, but also self-aware. At the same time, it's strange. Yeah, it reminds me of um, the Taco Bell killer, how he knew he was a monster, but also was like, I'm a good guy. Well, we we were talking about, like, did he have a split personality or something like that? And he was never diagnosed with one. And neither is Hal. He has never been diagnosed with a split personality. So it has to be something within them where they can reconcile being a good person, quote unquote, in the public's eye. And then when that monster comes out, they become a killer. It's this twisted desire inside him. I guess he separates it. He's like, I'm a good guy, but I just have this twisted side of me. Yeah, and that's actually a very good segue because this is a quote from a book that was written by Anne Howard. It's called His Garden, Conversations with a Serial Killer. In it, he says, I disassociate myself with my crimes. This is going to sound insensitive, and perhaps it is, but while society sees me as nothing but a monster, and perhaps they're right, at least they're not wrong to have that opinion, I don't see myself as that. I always tried to be a good person. I tried to be a man of my word. I tried to help people if I could. I wasn't a burglar, thief, 
or drug dealer, excluding the brief time I was a teenager and would rob Sears, but a lot of that was because the dumbasses would leave the gate to the outdoor section unlocked. The only thing I've ever stolen from an actual person is the little dirt bike, motorcycle, and license plates to put on my vehicles. Wow. Sears is a throwback, first of all. I don't even know if that's still in I don't think Sears is business. still in business, no. Department store for anybody who doesn't know what a Sears is. <laughs> <laughs> like a JCPenney or right. Macy's. Yeah. They were all together, but... But what do you think about how he says he disassociates with his crimes? It doesn't surprise me. I mean, he says in his quote that the only thing I've stolen from someone is a dirt bike, but like you've stolen people's lives. Right. You don't think of those as things you've taken. How he justifies that in the book is that he tells Anne that everyone that he has killed has been a drug addict and he feels that they were not worth anything. Which is not uncommon that serial killers usually justify killing sex workers and drug addicts because they don't think they're human. He believes they don't have value and so he thinks that it's okay to take their lives. And it's not. No, it's not. And so it's like, if you see this person, he's a serial killer, do you just say, well, he's a serial killer and the world is better off, so we might as well kill this person, but they don't see it that way. They don't. He actually makes up what he calls a golden rule when he becomes a serial killer, and that was to never kill someone you know. And if you remember the last serial killer we covered, Henry Louis Wallace, only killed people he did know. So that was definitely not common for a serial killer. Right. Whereas Howell obviously falls in line, at least in that statement of not killing people he knew. He would only follow this rule for six of his victims, but one of his victims he actually did know. And that helped to lead to his capture, which we will talk about later. We're going to discuss his early life, crimes, and throughout I'll probably reference the book that I read, which is the one I mentioned earlier, called His Garden. Do we talk about who the author is later on? Anne Howard. Do we talk about her relationship with him? Yes, we will. Okay. <laughs> because she ended up having a strange relationship with Howard, and some of the reviews on the book are very good, and they like it, and then other reviews talk about how she really didn't discuss the victims enough. Some people were taken aback by her relationship with Howard because she calls him her friend and he called her his friend. I'm curious to see how this relationship develops because I don't get it. It's strange. And she's an attorney. She's an attorney. That's right. Seeing these women go missing around where she lived. She lived in Connecticut at the time. And she just got a bit obsessed with finding out more about what was going on. And then after Howell was captured, she starts this relationship with him. She would write to him, call him and talk to him on the phone. And she would go and see him at the various prisons he was in. He ended up confessing, but he told her a lot about how he murdered these women and what he did to them. It was very brutal. And she didn't even go into as much detail in the book because she thought it was just that bad. And somehow she became a friend with this guy? It's very strange, I know. And she does call him out in the book and says that there's no excuse for his crimes. She tries to make him see how these victims, you know, were people. And he just doesn't see it. He has no empathy. He does not care. She's obviously not going to change his mind about it. So she's just like, well, you know, we agreed to disagree. She would give him copies of the transcript as she was writing it because he knew she was writing a book. And he would send it to her and he would say, I hate your book. Um, you make me out to look this way and you don't understand me and you're trying to psychoanalyze me. 
But then he would say things like, but you know, I, you're my friend and I care about you. This is so bizarre. It was really bizarre. And and she admits that it's very strange, you know, how she does despise what he did, but also yet considers him a friend. It's very strange. They would talk about when she would go on vacation. He's like, oh, you need to go here and here with your husband and see this and that. I don't get it. <laughs> no, I don't understand this. But I wonder if she was kind of like obsessed with this. It was so new to her, like this experience. And so she just maybe got so obsessed with like her writing the book and then her trying to understand him and it all just became it sounds like the biggest thing was trying to understand why he did what he did kind of like us we don't understand why serial killers kill people we don't get it and i think she was just really trying to understand that but in the process she ended up i guess letting herself like a certain part of this serial killer and become friends with him we don't I, get it I, I don't understand it but that was her experience, and she shared it, and she got a lot of insight. But at the same time, Just, uh, there's mean, no answer as to why he is the way he is. Couldn't he have killed her, too, like, at some point, like, realized that? No, he would not have killed her because she was not a drug addict. He only killed drug addicts that were sex workers, according to him. It's going to be a frustrating episode. I don't like any of the serial killers we cover, but this one particularly, I just despise him. Sounds like I will, too. You will. Yeah. So let's get into his early life. William Devon Howell was born on February 11th, 1970 in Hampton, Virginia, the youngest of four boys to Melissa and John Howell. Howell does not report any child abuse by his parents. In fact, he says that when he would get spanked, it was deserved and that his mother only gave him one if he was really bad. Additionally, one of his brothers had said in an online chat forum that his parents were actually too easy on him. Maybe it was the lack of discipline? Well, I don't know. Because he was disciplined, so it wasn't like he was never punished. That's just, the answer. It was just, he was born this way. I think so. And that's what Anne Howard says in her book, that one of the things she believes is he was born with something off in his brain. So nature, in this case. I think so. There are also no reports of sexual abuse or brain trauma. He describes his childhood quite nicely and states that there was always food on the table and clothes on their backs, and both of his parents were very hard workers. Around the age of 11 or 12, his mother was diagnosed with breast cancer, and then she had a series of strokes. Melissa Howell had prolonged illness with one of the strokes, leaving her paralyzed on the left side. She spent the next three years of her life in the family's home, in bed, staring out of a window. During this time, Howell says that his mother would ask him to go get his father's pistol and go outside to play. Howell said that he couldn't stand to see her suffer, but he of course was not going to give her a gun, and that it really messed him up inside not being able to help her, so he started drinking and doing drugs to escape his reality. Hmm. And he drank heavily, he said. It wasn't like he would just have a sip of beer or something like that. He drank and was drunk a lot of his childhood. And this is him. This is Howell. So I wonder, like, if this is some, like, self-hatred, you know, later on when he starts to kill his victims, like, they are drug addicts, and he is drinking and doing drugs to escape. Maybe. It was also around this time, about the age of 14, that Howell had his first experience with a sex worker. He states that he would sneak out around midnight and take his father's car and go to the red light district for oral sex. It became a secret addiction of his, and he would sneak out as much as possible and whenever he had some extra money. Then one day, his mother fell into a coma and was taken to the hospital. 
Howell spent the first couple of nights at the hospital with the rest of the family, but then he wanted to go home on the third night to see his girlfriend. He says that while he was at his girlfriend Mandy's house getting laid and trying to escape his problems, his mother died. He was 15 years old. Around the time of her death, Howell was charged with burglary. Howell says that after his mom died, he continued to drink heavily and see his girlfriend whenever he could. Howell had two DUIs on his record and one driving under suspension by the age of 19. Virginia courts used the combination of those offenses to declare him as a habitual offender, which ended up with Howell having his license taken from him for 10 years. This also meant that any subsequent charges would be automatically labeled as habitual offenses and as felonies could carry a one to five year sentence. He would still drive on a suspended license, though, and this is when he would steal other people's license plates and change out the tags. The only bad thing he's done. Right, right. So the burglary was the Sears incident, and then he would buy cheap cars, and then he would try and steal out-of-state license plates that he would get from motel parking lots. Wow. Then when he was 20, five years after his mother passed, his father passed away. Hal and Mandy continued dating. They dated off and on from the ages of 13 to 22. He ended up getting Mandy pregnant, and they actually ended up having two children together. But after they broke up, Mandy would marry another man and take their children out of state. So it sounds like he's not super involved in his kids' lives. So they were seven and two years old when he last saw them, and he says that he still misses them every day. He says he was very involved when he was part of their life, but then after Mandy left and took the kids, that was it. He's like, I guess I'm done. He says that she wouldn't let him see them. Which probably is a good thing. He also says that not having his license and Mandy taking away his children infuriated him, and he seems to blame his rage that later comes in the form of rape and murder on his screwed-up early life. He does blame it on himself. He says that he was a screw-up, so he recognizes that he's screwing up his life. Nobody has done that to him. Okay. And he blames most of what went wrong later on the fact that he started drinking heavily. He says that if it wasn't for his drinking, he never would have lost his license. The license seems to be a very big deal throughout the book. He talks about how he didn't have it for 10 years, and he just doesn't let that go. Well, he was still, you know, stealing license plates so he could drive around anyway. Yeah, it's not like it stopped him from driving, so whatever. I know. The addiction thing is starting to become a theme here, which makes me think this has to be some kind of, like, self-hatred type of crime. I think that's a good point. In 2001, Howell moved to Connecticut. He had a girlfriend by that time named Dory and earned a living. Dory. (laughs) Her name was Dorothy and they call her Dory. Yes. Oh, that's cute. I know. It's not like Finding Nemo, though. (laughs) I was going to start singing the Just Keep Swimming. Sing it. Sing it for us. No. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, fine. (laughs) At this time, he was earning a living doing lawn care and he would use Dory's van and keep all of his lawn equipment in there. And he would spend periods of time away from Dory due to his lawn care business. So he would just sleep in his van in a parking lot for weeks at a time in whatever area he was working. So he just is a nomad. 
So it sounded like it was because of where he would work. So there would be a lot of lawn care jobs in one area and he would just stay there for long periods of time to handle that. And then like in the winter months and and times where he didn't have as much business going on, he would go and live with Dory. I see. But obviously a lot of time away gave him like there was periods of time where he was unaccounted for, kind of like with Israel Keys, He would take off doing these, you know, quote unquote work trips. And that's when he would actually be murdering people. He had a lot of opportunity. And people would not suspect that because I think he's just working. Exactly. So Howell says that he had a sick fantasy about raping a prostitute. Those are his words. And he said he had been having this fantasy for years and wanted to make it real. So going to get oral sex wasn't exciting for him anymore. And he also said that he knew if he committed a rape, he would have to kill the person afterwards so they wouldn't tell the cops. So he was already formulating this plan in his head that in February of 2003, he went into a hardware store and walked the aisles looking for things he would need to commit his crime. He picked up ropes, zip ties, duct tape, and a hammer. He said that he didn't have a lawn care job the next day, so he would have time to commit the crime and not worry about work. Later that night, he picked up Melanie Ruth Camellini, a 29-year-old mother of two from Seymour, Connecticut. She had gone missing about a month earlier. Melanie was known to struggle with substance abuse, and she would regularly disappear for long periods of time. She had been reported missing by her family. After Hal picked Melanie up in his van, she performed oral sex on him, and then he grabbed her by the throat with his left hand and forced her onto the back bench of his van while he grabbed a hammer from his tool bucket. He hit her in the head with the hammer because she was fighting back. That is just terrifying. He bound her hands together and then tied a plastic grocery bag over them. He then duct taped her ankles together and her mouth shut. He told her that if he heard the bag rattling like she was trying to free her hands, he would pull over and beat her. He then drove her to a different parking lot where he felt he would not be bothered by any cops. He then raped her in the parking lot off and on throughout the night and didn't stop until 2 p.m. the following afternoon. Howell would make her suffer because it was pleasurable for him. He enjoyed the rage and power he had over her. He drove her to another location and raped her a final time before strangling her. He says that she begged for her life and asked him not to kill her because she had children that needed her, but he didn't care. He would keep her dead body in his van for a couple of weeks and slept next to it at night because, as he said, he had no choice. This is so uh, disturbing. And just to hear about how he, like, recounts the acts of what he does. He, like, moved her from location to location and then just... Just kept raping her. Raped her her nonstop. And the rape was very brutal. In the book, she doesn't even go into it in the detail that I guess he went into about it in his letters to her. Because she said it was just so awful. But... She made it very clear that the women that he raped suffered horrible things in the last hours of their life. And he enjoyed it. He did. So that the police could not identify her body, about a week after he killed her, he cut off her fingertips with a pair of pruning shears and cracked her jaw on each side with the hammer and then cut her lower jaw off with an extendable disposable razor knife. Oh my god. He was trying to get rid of, I guess, her teeth for dental records and then her fingertips for fingerprints is what he says. He said it wasn't about... um 
you know, torture. Torture. Well, I mean, it's after. It's after she's she's dead. dead. Right. So he claims it was about the rape. The only reason he kills these women is because he doesn't want them to go to the cops because he doesn't want to go back to jail. So he does this to try and get rid of anything that would identify her. It's so brutal, even after the fact. He put her fingertips and jaw in a plastic grocery bag and threw them away separately from where he would take her body. Howell realized that he was not going to be able to dig a hole in the ground because it was frozen from the Connecticut winter. He says that he was kind of freaking out because he had a dead woman in his van and he didn't know what he was going to do. He ended up wrapping her body in a tarp and he put her behind the seat. He says she bled all over because he had hit her with the hammer and cut off parts of her body. The blood actually soaked through to the bottom of his van. Oh, wow. That stuff was probably stuck in there. Yes. He then decided to roll the bagged body down an embankment behind a strip mall and hide it in a barrel that was laying in a pile of discarded waste. He states that there is old footage from News 8 where you can see the barrel in the woods that he originally used to conceal her body. Once April came and the snow started melting, he returned to where he had left Melanie's body and buried it in the wooded area behind the strip mall. And I do have a picture to show you. I'll put this in our stories. This is the area where he buried all of the bodies. Oh, in the forest. Right. So as you can see, this is the strip mall and he would drive down and there was an embankment right about here and he said he would dump the bodies and they would roll down and then he would come back and park. There's a McDonald's somewhere and he would walk over here and get the bodies, drag them and bury them back here. Wow. Just to think about like your local McDonald's or your local strip mall. And behind there could be dead bodies. I know. So that's interesting that they um, were able to find that area. Or, well, I guess he disclosed that. No, first it was actually found. We'll get into that. Marilyn Gonzalez was a 26-year-old mother of two children who went missing in 2003 after she left her home in Waterbury. In May, Howell picked her up around 2 a.m. with the intent to rape and murder her. And in the same way that he had done with Melanie, he bound Marilyn to the back bench of his van and drove her to a motel parking lot to rape her for several hours. He then drove her to a second location and raped her several more times. He left the following morning and drove to another motel parking lot and raped her throughout that entire day. He would brutalize these women by yelling obscene things to them while he was raping them. He would ask them about their childhood and whether or not they had been molested so that he could act out their past trauma and fears on them. What the hell? He he is truly a disgusting human. So while he is raping this woman, he is asking her about her childhood trauma? Yep. Asking them if they had been molested before, asking them if they had been sodomized ever before this, asking them very intense questions while he is brutalizing them. And then they're already going through something traumatic. And then he's trying to make it worse. And he would shout just awful things at them. And I'm sure he was trying to humiliate them. And that's what he said he was trying to do. Yeah. Then around 3 p.m., he drove to a McDonald's parking lot and raped her two more times before strangling her. He would dispose of her body in the same way that he did Melanie's by duct taping her nude body and wrapping her in trash bags. And then he would throw the body over the guardrail and let it roll down the hill. He would come back the next day and go down the embankment to get the body and drag it into the woods. It was about 100 yards from the parking lot, and that's where he would bury them. 
Marilyn was described as always happy and smiling. Her children were 11 and 7 when she went missing. And in an article I read, it was later on after she had been missing for a long time, but obviously her children were grown and one of them had had a child. And so saying, you know, if she was around, she would be a grandmother and spending that time with her grandkid. So sad. Janice Roberts was the working name of Danny Lee Wisnat. Danny was born on October 5th, 1958, and was from New Britain. Danny was 44 years old and transsexual. On June 18th of that same year, Howell picked Danny up for oral sex. While Danny was performing oral sex on Howell, he grabbed Danny's hair and noticed it was a wig. Realizing then that he was transgender, he strangled Danny. He would later dump Danny's body at the shopping center then bury it in a shallow grave. Danny's mother would report Danny missing on June 24th. Danny was not a drug addict. So Howell's statement that he only killed people with drug addictions was not true. I mean, in my opinion, this sounds like this was like a hate crime. That's what I was thinking too. Because in the book, he says, the reason I killed him is because I found out he was a man. He uses a very derogatory term. And obviously, I'm not going to repeat it. So I think you're right that it was a hate crime. Yeah. And the fact that or they were just in, you know, in the middle of a sex act. Right. That probably enraged him. And that does not give him any right to do anything like that. No, but I think it shows that his statement about only killing sex workers that are drug addicts, it's not true. And so I wonder if he, other than the people that he admits to killing, if there are others that he has killed as well. Yeah. Because this is probably just his justification for why he yes. killed people, uh, to have it to be some kind of defense, and it's not. It's not, right. Um, so, yeah, I, I think you're right about, you know, this could possibly mean there are more victims out there that he just hasn't admitted to. And a lot of people think there are more victims. In the book, Anne Howard does think the victim he claims is his first victim, which is Melanie. She does believe that is his first victim just because of how he describes it and how he says that that was the only one that he was upset about just because of the brutality of it and how he was how he tried to get rid of identifying things on her body. And so she thinks that that was actually his first murder. Because he doesn't continue to like no. top off. Nope. It was only Melanie. I wonder what that's about. Like, did he just he was just give up on that? He was afraid of getting caught. And then after he didn't get caught with, you know, the first one, the second one, he just he probably he thought nobody's. Yeah, he probably thought nobody's going to find me. And like we've seen with a lot of serial killers, the more people they kill, they tend to eventually slip up. That's true. Nilsa Arismendi and her boyfriend, Angel Ace Sanchez, struggled with drug addiction. Nilsa and Ace were each smoking about 20 to 30 pieces of crack per day and shooting up a bundle and a half of heroin. Their drug addiction was very expensive, and Nilsa turned to sex work to support it. Even though Ace didn't like what she did, he wanted to get high, and so he would go with her and wait for her to perform oral sex on a man in his car. Ace mentioned that he wanted them both to go to rehab. Nilsa had children and had been in and out of rehab for many years, trying to get healthy, but she felt that it never really did her any good. On July 25th of 2003, as she and Ace walked back towards their motel, she noticed the van of a man she knew, Devin Howell. Ace and Nilsa had met Howell a few months before when he was at a gas station pumping gas. 
It was raining heavily that day, and so they wanted to ride back to the motel. They offered him $5. Then they would kind of keep meeting up with him, and he would give them rides. In the early morning hours of July 25th, Ace watched Nilsa get into Howell's van. That would be the last time he saw her alive. Nilsa asked Howard to drive her to get drugs. When Howell said no, she offered to give him oral sex. When she wouldn't finish, he threatened to rape her. She fought back, and he hit her in the head with a large wrench. It knocked her out enough that he was able to tie her up to the bench in the back of the van. He drove her to a parking lot where he raped her for the first time. Then he drove her to a different location and raped her three more times. While she was tied up and had duct tape over her mouth, he took a nap beside her. And one thing I have to mention is he would do the same thing every time to all these women. After he had raped them multiple times and he was hungry, he would go to a drive through and get food and ask them what they wanted to eat. He would order them food and he says every time they accepted the food... Well, yeah, if you're hungry, you're going to accept the food. Yeah, I mean, at, at that point, you take whatever you can get. <laughs> exactly. You probably want energy to hopefully be able to fight back or for whatever reason. So they would accept the food. Basically, he was buying them their last meal. What an asshole. Yes. He drove her to a third location after this and made her perform oral sex on him and raped her a couple more times. It was later in the morning at this point, and he decided to kill her. Nilsa fought back but he was stronger than her and ended up strangling her in his van. After he killed her, he duct taped her nude body in the fetal position and wrapped three large trash bags around her. He would dump her clothing and personal items in random trash cans, and he would bury her body behind the strip mall like he did with his previous victims. In that photo that you have um, of him, it looks like he's a big guy. Yes, he was a big guy. And so the women he is attacking, they have a drug addiction. And as we know, drug addictions can make someone very thin. They were not large women. Um, although two of them, he says, were strong and fought back. And that's why he hit one with a wrench. He does various other things, but. Right. And I'm sure that's the adrenaline as well. Yes. In the moment. Right. But he was much larger than these women and could easily overpower them. I guess we should say that because she tried to fight back. She and, did. And though he's a big guy. Yeah, he is a big guy. After burying Nilsa's body, Howell went home to Dory and they had dinner together and then had sex. Howell said that he and Dory had a very active sex life and that she would have sex with him two or three times a day when he was there. He also said that Dory said he was the best she ever had because he was not a selfish lover and pleased her first. I think that is him wanting to sound one way to the interviewer. What do you think, Jennifer? Are these words from Dory or is this This him? is his words. Oh, of course he's going to try to make himself <laughs> sound like an amazing lover. Like, you rape and kill women. I can't believe that you're some amazing lover. I'm no, sorry. I don't believe that. Yeah, I think that's him wanting to sound good to the interviewer. I really do. Yeah, like boosting himself up. Yes. I, but I don't think that's the I case know, at I all. I think I'm so sure either. it's probably the like, exact opposite. Right. He did admit that. Obviously, he, he wasn't taking any type of, like, Viagra or anything, so he could continually rape these women. He says that after, like, the first couple of times he would rape them, he couldn't finish, but he would still continue to rape them. Isn't the thing with, like, the crime of rape, that kind of, like, gets them off? Like, yes. that's what... That's why they do it. It's sexually exciting for him, is what he said, yes. So for him to go and say, like, platonic sex is 
amazing for them. I just don't believe I that. Don't, I don't believe it either. And the fact that he wants to just be so brutal with these women, and then he can go and supposedly be this just Sweet, amazing romantic, romantic lover. lover that takes his time. I don't believe it. I really don't. Nice try. Yeah. Nice We're try. not fooled. Nope. Mary Jane Menard was a 40-year-old mother of two from Waterbury. She was a former addict, but she had turned her life around to become a substance abuse counselor for many years. She went missing from New Britain around late September or early October of 2003 when Howell picked her up in his van after she had suffered a relapse. Howell bound her and drove her to various locations where he would brutally rape her. Then he strangled her and buried her body behind the strip mall. Mary's obituary notice reads, She achieved and overcame many obstacles and was admired for her hard work and dedication. She was very active in the community and loved by all. She was a substance abuse counselor who truly loved and helped others. We will always remember her for her strength, courage, and personality. She loved to sing and brightened any room with her smile. MJ was a diehard Patriots and Red Sox fan. She loved her baking, burning candles, singing, and her family. She will be remembered in our hearts, in our laughs, and in our songs. So Mary, she, or they called her MJ, she actually had a boyfriend who was a recovering addict as well, and he had been diagnosed with AIDS. She met him during a time where she was volunteering. They got really close, and the family actually thought he had done something to MJ. Really? Yes. After she was already... After she went missing. He was a suspect, and he ended up committing suicide. So later on, they find out that it was Howell, and Anne Howard actually got a letter from one of her children talking about how she was a great person. She did a lot of good things. Yes, there was hardships, and she had a drug addiction at times, but uh, they felt very bad for thinking it was the boyfriend when it wasn't. And this actually happened in another case, too. Ace was accused of killing... Nilsa? Yes. So he was a suspect, and the family thought it was him as well. They talk about how Howell didn't just kill one person. When he killed these women, it caused other people to be accused of their disappearances, and it destroyed families, and it was just this domino effect that changed so many lives. Yeah, it affected more than just the victim who was murdered. That's just awful. Diane Cusack was a 55-year-old resident of New Britain. Diane had a substance abuse problem and had been out of contact with her family for many years, and so she was never reported missing. Howell picked her up sometime in October, and like he did with the previous women, bound her to the back bench of his van and took her to various locations to brutally rape her for over a day and a half. He even used a shock absorber to rape Diane. A shock absorber is a car part. And it's not small. I had to look it up. Let me show you this. Yeah, can have some perspective. Mm -hmm. mm. So that's not a small item. No. He tries to justify it by saying that it was kind of a sex toy and wasn't that big. Oh and, my god. But clearly that's not a small object. No. It looks painful. He states that even though he raped these women, he didn't do anything he considers really sadistic. And by that, he means that he didn't go to extremes to torture or cause them pain. 
But it was obviously painful for his victims. He knew this. And he enjoyed their emotional and physical pain. And it was sexually exciting for him to hurt them. What world is this guy living in? He doesn't think he's done anything. Right. Like the worst thing he's done is steal a freaking bike. It's like he completely puts his rapes and murders in this other category. And and like minimizes it. Yeah. It's like, I wasn't doing anything that bad. Right. I wasn't trying to torture them. Like they're bound up and you're using objects to rape them and you're saying these awful things to them. Yeah. You're hitting them with hammers, wrenches and beating them. And And the fact that he sees that as not torture is insane to me. Joyvelin Joy, as they called her, Martinez, was only 23 when she went missing on October 10th, 2003. Unfortunately, she was not reported missing until March 29th, 2004, when she didn't show up for a birthday party. The last time she was seen was in her hometown of East Hartford, where she lived with her mother. At the time of her disappearance, she was unemployed. Howell would pick her up one night in October and, like with the previous victims, drove her to various locations, rape her, and then when he felt he was done, strangle her and buried her body behind the strip mall. Howell states that Joy was resisting him in the beginning, so he punched her in the face to make her compliant. Joy would be his last victim before he was caught. Her remains were actually the first to be recovered from the shopping plaza area in 2007, but they didn't identify her remains until 2013. Joy was a track star in high school and loved her family. Her friends and family posted so many things about her online, about how much they loved family get-togethers with her and how loving she was. As much as Howell did not view these women as innocent or important, they were important. And even if they didn't fall into his twisted category of innocent, they were worthy of life. And he took that from them. So he has no empathy? No empathy. Yeah. Sex workers and drug addicts. Like, they they just see that as, that's who they are. Like, that's, we've said it before. I I mean, an addiction does not take away their humanity and, like, the other aspects of who they are. Right, they deserve life. Like, they are human beings with personalities, families, and there's no reason to think that just because someone struggles with an addiction or has a certain job, that doesn't mean they're... They deserve something like this happening. Yeah. In April of 2004, Howell became a suspect in Nilsa's disappearance. Remember that Ace, her boyfriend, saw her leave with Howell in his van. So when police seized Howell's van, he had already removed two bloody cushions from the back bench, but the blood had soaked through to the floor. So DNA taken from the floor of the van was compared to DNA from Nilsa's relatives, and it was determined that the blood samples were 99% certain to come from Nilsa. They also confiscated six videotapes of Howell having what they called bizarre sex with women. The videos were shot in such a way that the faces of the women were not clearly visible. Nilsa's body had not yet been found, but Howell was still charged with first-degree manslaughter. So because of Ace, like, he gave police the tip. Because Howell murdered somebody that knew him, that really led to his capture. Wow. In January of 2007, shortly after his trial began, Howell entered into an Alford plea to first-degree manslaughter. An Alford plea meant that he did not admit to the crime, but conceded that the prosecution had enough evidence to make a conviction likely. 
at his sentencing, Howell insisted that he did not kill Nilsa and argued that the bloodstains were from a physical fight in the van between her and her boyfriend, Ace. He also tried to get the Alford plea thrown out, stating that the public defender pressured him into taking it. Howell was sentenced to 15 years in prison for manslaughter in the first degree. Just weeks after his sentencing, a hunter finds human bones behind the West Farms shopping mall in West Hartford, Connecticut. These remains were later identified as Diane Cusack, Joyvelyn Martinez, and Mary Jane Menard. More remains were discovered on April 28, 2015, and those were identified as Nilsa Arismendi, Marilyn Gonzalez, Melanie Ruth Camellini, and Danny Lee Wistant. Howell ends up confessing to a fellow prison inmate about the murders, and on November 17, 2017, while Howell was already serving a 15-year prison sentence for manslaughter, he was sentenced to six consecutive life sentences after pleading guilty to the murders of Cusack, Martinez, Menard, Gonzalez, Camelini, and Wistant. Okay, so he confessed. He did. He confessed to an inmate, and the inmate basically gave up his confession. During that sentencing, he tried to apologize to the families and victims, calling his actions monstrous, cowardly, and selfish. He also told the court that he deserved the death penalty, but it was abolished by the Connecticut Supreme Court in 2015, so he would spend the rest of his life in prison. In Connecticut, a life sentence is 60 years in prison, so he was sentenced to 360 years which as we know, if he's a Scientologist, he will spend many more lives in prison. Great. That may be the only redeeming quality for Scientology. Is, you just keep coming back? Is that all these awful people just keep coming back and what, they go straight to prison? Yeah, that would be <laughs> That'd great. That'd be fabulous. He is currently serving his time at Cheshire Correctional Institution. Ann Howard, an attorney, contacted Howell while he was serving his 15-year sentence, and they had written correspondence, phone calls, and even some face-to-face -face visits in prison like we talked about earlier. So they formed a very strange friendship, and she would later write the book His Garden, Conversations with the Serial Killer. One of the things Howell says to her is, I think that for me that it was the power and sexual control that invigorated me and caused me to repeat these crimes. And I don't think I would have stopped until I was caught. And if it weren't for a couple of simple mistakes, I may have never been caught. This is very much the M.O. for the male serial rapist and killer. Yes. Like the power, the control. Yep. And that's what keeps them going. And that's what keeps them wanting to keep committing these crimes. And later on, they get lazy and then they get caught. But isn't it scary that, like, just a regular person yeah. who's getting gas at a gas station could yep. just have this desire and no idea? He was mowing people's lawns and doing lawn care, and they probably, I'm sure they had no clue no. that their lawn care person was a serial rapist and murderer. Unless you give off those vibes, you would never know. He hit it well. If it wasn't for, I think, killing somebody he knew and was associated with previously, he may not have ever been caught if he had kept killing people that he had no association with. Do you know who ended up um, naming him the Sick Ripper? So it was in jail. He dubbed himself the Sick Ripper. Mills is the name of the guy who ended up basically hearing his confession. 
Howell said he wanted to get it off his chest and confess to Mills all this stuff that he had done. Mills says he called himself the Sick Ripper. He had the murder mobile and he called where he buried the women in his garden. But then when he is talking to Anne Howard and she's creating this book about the conversations, he tells her that Mills made all that up and he never said any of that. So I wonder if he's then embarrassed that he made up that moniker. And so he's saying, oh, no, that wasn't me. That was Mills that made all that up. I mean, later on, I'm sure, because he probably realized how ridiculous it sounded. (laughs) But I think, honestly, that he was probably just wanting to brag. When he says he wants to get it off his chest, he's like, I have to tell someone, like, what I've done. Because I'm so, he's probably so proud of it. Um, I could see that. Gives off that energy. Then, once an attorney approaches him and wants to write a book, he's like, I need to make myself look better than... Yes, I think so. Wants to look a certain way and whatever, that's his prerogative. But after hearing all of the crimes that he's committed, it's even harder for me to understand how someone can say, like, yes, I know all this stuff that you've done, but I still see good in you and I still want to be your friend or consider you a friend. That's hard for me, too. Yeah. I don't understand that. Well, that's where, how we feel about it. (laughs) That's where we'll leave it. Yeah. (laughs) Don't understand that. Each their own. So if you were going to interview a serial killer, who would you want to interview? You know who I would choose? Israel Keys? No, hell no. Who would you choose? Pedro Rodriguez. If I had to speak to a serial killer, he's the only one I would be okay with speaking to. Even if like you were surrounded by protection? He never, and... he never killed women. But if the scenario where you are interviewing a serial killer and you are protected, there's no way they're going to harm you. I don't want to interview any of them. They're not worth anyone's time. They're not worth my time. If I had to, though, I think uh, Pedro Rodriguez is interesting or fascinating to me just because of his personal code. The The vigilante type, only killing bad guys. I still don't agree with it. But he never hurt women, never hurt children. And then he turned his life around when he got out of jail and actually tries to keep young kids out of a life of crime. So I think that would be the only person I would be okay with interviewing. That makes sense. I don't think I'd want to talk to any of them. (laughs) No. Like, I feel they're all looking to frame themselves in some kind of way. We don't have time for that. You want to interview aliens. Yes. Yes. Aliens, maybe ghosts. Ghosts, okay. That's who I want to talk to. We think we have orbs in the podcast room already, right? Some of the pictures showed right. a ton yes. of orbs, so we, we never know. We may be interviewing a ghost. Well, what's your next episode? Joe Matheny is my Was he next abducted? One. He was not, but... <sighs> You're not giving us an alien episode, Jennifer. I know. it's It'll be there. Don't worry. <laughs> it'll come. I'm ready for an alien episode after all of our awful serial we've killers. We've had so many serial killer episodes. I don't think we've had one alien episode this year. We haven't. Have we? No. But in our defense, we asked the listeners in a poll on Spotify if they wanted to have more alien episodes, hauntings, or serial killers. And you all spoke and said serial killer episodes. So we feel like we've delivered. We have. <laughs> so I think you can put in an alien episode at any point. Okay. Whenever you're ready. At least one. It's July and we haven't had any. I know. Or it'll be August when we post this. It's August and we haven't had any. <laughs> we'll get there. Don't worry. <laughs> well, anything else? I don't think so. So follow us on all the socials, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, 
search Freshly Brewed Noir. You can send us an email at freshlybrewednoir at gmail.com. You can give us a review or rate us five stars, Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And until next time, stay caffeinated, get hobbies, and don't murder people. Bye. Bye.